Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this year's IPS Northern Lecture Series by Professor Chan Heng Chi, our 7SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Following her lecture, Professor Chan will take questions from our Facebook comments. The Q&A session will be chaired by Professor Danny Kwa, Dean and Lee Kashin Professor in Economics, Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, National University of Singapore. Here are some housekeeping rules at the start of our event. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded on the IPS website and Facebook page later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time through our Facebook page. We will try our best to answer as many as we can. We would also like to hear your view on the event. There will be a link on our Facebook page, which you can click to submit your feedback. Our director of IPS, Janada Stephen, will be giving the opening remarks. Director, please. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the seventh IPS Northern Lecture Series. The first, which we are also conducting virtually over Facebook Live, and also the first that will be broadcast over radio at a later date. The SR Northern Fellowship for the Study of Singapore was established in 2014 to pay tribute to our sixth and longest serving president, the late Mr. SR Northern. The fellowship aims to promote greater discourse on Singapore's public policy and current affairs. Typically held on the university campus, the IPS Northern Lectures seek to advance public understanding and stimulate discussion of national issues to engage the minds of Singaporeans and in particular students. Our seventh SR Northern Fellow is Professor Chan Heng Chi. Many of you would know her as Singapore's permanent representative to the United Nations and longtime ambassador to the United States. Over her 16 years in Washington, she was as well known in Washington as she is in Singapore. She's currently the chair of the Lee Kuan Yew Center for Innovative Cities in the, at the Singapore University of Technology and Design. And on the board of trustees of ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute and continues to be ambassador at large at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. She has worn many hats over the years. I would like to think that she was occupied under one of her most distinguished appointments was as the founding director of IPS. Since then, we have had the descent of directors to me. Um, an academic and political scientist by training, she was the head of the NUS Department of Political Science before she moved over uh, to diplomacy and is known, among other things, for a 1975 paper, Politics in an Administrative State or Administration State, uh, Where Has Politics Gone?, which she informed me she will return to in the course of these lectures. Professor Chan will deliver three lectures titled World in Transition, Singapore's Future. Her first lecture is Disruption, Democracy, Falters, Capitalism, Flounders, World Order Unravels. This will be followed by a second lecture, the US-China rivalry, and her third and final one, which will come back to Singapore in a time of flux, optimism from the jaws of gloom. She will speak about disruption, looking at COVID-19 and beyond. She will also talk about the US-China rivalry, and she will consider the implications for Singapore of all this. Or, even if it appears that there are challenges on the horizon. I would also like to thank Professor Danny Kwa, who is Dean 
of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, as well as a Lee Ka-shing Professor in Economics at the school. He was previously a Professor of Economics um, at, um, at the London School of Economics. Um, his research interests um, include income inequality and international economic relations. And uh, he is well equipped and I'm grateful for him to agreeing to uh, chair the uh, Q&A session later. Without further ado, Professor Chan. Thank you. Director of IPS, Janadas Devan, Dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, Professor Danny Kwa. I thank IPS for inviting me to be the seventh SR Nathan Fellow. It is a great honor to share my thoughts on an important topic with this audience. As uh, Janadas Devan has said, the theme of my three lectures will be World in Transition, Singapore's Future. Rapid change is now a constant. Globally, important institutions are questioned and coming apart. A lot of churn is happening in society, in the economy, and geopolitical shifts are in the offing. These, this evening, I will speak on the first of three lectures, and the title is Disruption, Democracy Falters, Capitalism Flounders, World Order Unravels. You are familiar with the poem of William Butler Yeats, The Second Coming. Can we have the poem, please? Thank you. I think the poem captures the mood presented by the profound challenges we face today. We all know the lines, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. It is invoked so often it is now a cliche. You are familiar with the last two lines of the first verse. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Now the second verse and last line is less familiar and it says, and what rough beast is our come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Now some literary critics interpret the rough beast according to the era. It can be a historical force, communism, fascism, the atomic bomb, or something malignant. Is the rough beast today terrorism, populism, political conflict, or a pandemic? Now that I have provided the setting, let me turn to the four big challenges the world is faced with today. The first challenge, disruption. The COVID-19 virus spread silently and swiftly and became a pandemic in a couple of months. Everyone in the world was disrupted. You know, I had completed my first draft sometime in the middle of January. I wrote about the VUCA world represented by technology of disruption, the future of work and the acute and chronic climate hazards. I did not include epidemics or pandemics. That was a mistake. Bill Gates in 2015 had forewarned us that the world would not be ready for the next pandemic having come out of the Ebola crisis. He said, and I quote, if anything kills over 10 million people over the next few decades, it would most likely be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Not missiles, but microbes. Gates was right. 
The virus epidemic, which started in Wuhan, became a pandemic within three months and took the world by surprise with its contagiousness, severity, speed of its spread. Cities are in lockdown, markets in meltdown. Economists believe a global recession is unavoidable. And on June 17, yesterday, WHO reported about 8 million confirmed COVID-19 cases globally, and the death toll was about 440,000. Many wise people are describing COVID-19 as a historical watershed. It is a searing experience that has touched the lives of every person in the world in a way no other threat has done before. COVID-19 has taught us many lessons. Many things we took for granted were changed. Disruption was experienced in every domain. Freedom of movement, freedom of association, freedom of, from fear and anxiety for personal well-being. We fear the loss of business, our jobs. We fear about health security and food security. There are not enough masks, medicines, equipment, and we fear there will be no more food in the markets and supermarkets. Never have citizens felt more trapped, whether they live in democracies or authoritarian systems. But this disruption also showed that countries and territories in East Asia, which have been seen to be successful in bringing the COVID-19 pandemic under relative control, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan, all had gone through a traumatic pandemic, SARS, in 2003. South Korea, another successful case, weathered a MERS outbreak in 2015. These societies learned, and very importantly, developed resilience from the earlier health disaster. Furthermore, in spite of having different political systems, they all share to some degree a communitarian culture where social solidarity is valued. This makes it easier for governments to implement measures in a crisis and receive a high degree of compliance. This seems to be the case too in the Nordic countries where the communitarian spirit is strong and reflected in their universalist welfare sector and corporatist economic social model. They are managing well, but medical experts would argue it is really widespread and early testing and a well-run and well-funded healthcare system which seem to reduce fatalities and contain the situation, social cultural factors aside. The question everyone is asking is how will COVID-19 change the world, and there are different takes. In an op-ed in the Straits Times in April, I took the position that I do not see a great transformation happening post-COVID-19. Some things will change. Some trends which are already there will be accelerated. But in the end, the national DNAs of countries will assert themselves and things will settle into a new norm, a bit like the old norm. I note that Malcolm Gladwell, author of The Tipping Point, makes the same conclusion in a Channel 4 interview on April 20th, 2020. He said, the COVID pandemic 
is too short for transformation. He said, the Great Depression lasted 10 years, World War II, five years, the COVID-19 pandemic for two to three months. Well, I think Mr. Gladwell, it's a little longer, but I get your point. The effects on the economy will last much longer. Gladwell suggested we should never underestimate people's ability to go back to normal and return to the status quo. You know, I was in the United States as ambassador when SARS happened. I was there during 9-11 for the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Each time there was a lengthy self-examination of the problem and the ramping up of defenses, a resolve to bring change, but things settled back to much before. China banned civic cats from the market immediately after SARS, but later they reappeared with other exotic wild animals. The legacy of 9-11 is stringent airport security. Americans found they had to live with the Patriot Act, which has remained in place. Other cities in the world are vigilant against potential terrorist violence. The financial crisis, which was a deeply painful experience for America, is seemingly forgotten. The financial industry is more tightly regulated. The average American will say nothing much has changed in their lives, and many got poorer. Now, the IMF has predicted the pandemic will trigger the worst recession since the Great Depression, dwarfing the 2008 global financial crisis. We will see major economic restructuring. Job losses will be painful, staggering, and tragic. We will see international collaboration step up to find a vaccine, but national competitiveness in biomedical sciences will return. Wealthier countries may increase their expenditure on healthcare, on healthcare, but improve stockpiles, but poorer countries will, will not be able to do so. A think tank or a consultancy will come up with a pandemic readiness index. Technology use would be accelerated and further developed, and e-commerce already gaining ground will step up. People will be more interested in working from home and want flexible working hours. Supply chains will be reconfigured, but that was already happening before the pandemic because of the US-China trade war. The pandemic has seen a return to the state, sorry, the pandemic has seen the return of the state as a positive force where societies have argued for shrinking government. More than ever, the pandemic has shown that decisive and active government can better deal with controlling the coronavirus outbreak. In the matter of geopolitics, we will see emerging trends accelerated, particularly the US-China rivalry. I believe the importance of the human connection has been brought clearly into relief during our lockdowns. And though we connect online, we need to socialize, to meet and gather. We will go to the shops and there will be pent up demand for travel again, though not so soon. Let me leave you with this thought. Over the long term, the disruption caused by technological development to the way we live, work, play and learn will be deeper and more severe 
than the disruption by COVID-19. Yuval Harari, in a Hard Talk interview in May 2020, said the biggest change he sees wrought by COVID-19 is that when we look back decades later, we would see this moment as the watershed when the world accepted the use of surveillance technology in the name of health as normal and surveillance under the skin, which is a totally new thing. This means a touch of the finger on a smartphone registers a person's body temperature and blood pressure under the skin. And people talk of implanting microchips. Now let me move to the second challenge, democracy falters. Let me begin with a discussion on democracy because there has been a great deal of interest in this topic lately. We are hearing a steady stream of voices from the West suggesting democracy has failed and asking why it has failed. Now, at the end of World War II, the United States and Europe emerged the winners of the war. The Soviet Union was technically on the winning side too, as one of the allies in the military alliance to defeat Germany and Japan. But it was an uneasy alliance. And the Iron Curtain came down soon after, soon after and the Cold War officially began. The world thereafter divided into two camps, the alliance of pro-West free market democracies and the alliance of centrally planned command economies of the communist countries. Most of us grew up at a time when America was one of two superpowers bestriding the world, actively promoting its values. In the fight for independence, during the process of decolonization, the strongest argument nationalists used was the right to run their own sovereign democratic governments. Colonial powers favored players who chose the moderate constitutional path as the nationalists they would work with. For the next 50 years after the end of World War II, democracy and communism were rival systems for the hearts and minds of the new states in various regions in the world. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1992 for many politicians and intellectuals in Western countries was the triumph of the West. And Francis Fukuyama declared prematurely, it was the end of history. It was a triumph of democracy over communism. Today, we hear a great deal about a crisis in democracy in the United States and Europe, where the systems were born and evolved. It is not the first time that both continents have mourned for democracy. The rise of fascism in the 30s prompted the same dark forebodings and spawned many explanations. Now, a fresh slew of books has appeared. How democracies die, democracies in chain, how, democracies, how democracy ends, rupture, the crisis of liberal democracy, can democracy survive global capitalism, democracy and its crisis, to name a few. You saw the slide, which came out a bit too soon, but never mind. Then there is a rich list of publications on digital democracy and how in the age of rapid technological change, the arrival of deep technology, technology is threatening the very principles of democracy in their applications. 
Thus, the West is going through the self-examination and angst again. The question is, why? What does this tell us about societies? And what lessons must Singapore be alert to with developments halfway around the world? It used to be that the failure of democracy was associated with newly independent states in the developing world, which could not cope with the implementation of the imported system. There have been many cases of military coups overthrowing constitutional governments, but returning to some form of parliamentary democracy after a period of time. And in the practice of democracy, there are varying models. Farid Zakaria in The Future of Freedom points to the reality that there are liberal democracies and illiberal democracies. Now, there is an ongoing debate in the countries that begat democracy, expressing dissatisfaction with the democratic system as it is practiced. In a sense, it, strengthened, it speaks to the strength of the democratic system and that there is the existence of a healthy discourse to find improvement. The election of Donald Trump as president of the United States, Brexit, and extreme populist politics popping up in so many countries have raised questions about the health of democracy, its institutions, processes, and even the very idea of liberalism itself. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying Western democracy is faltering because of any single individual. The trajectory of US politics was set before President Trump came into the picture. His election was facilitated by highly polarizing debate, loss of tolerance, evaporating trust for the political system, patent inequalities, extreme allegations online, online and the swirl of post-truth facts or fake facts. Brexit raises questions about referendums and party politics, as well as the ability of democracies to absorb globalization and immigration. The Pew Research Center in a poll in 2018 across 27 countries found more people dissatisfied than satisfied with the way democracy works. And I present two figures for you. What these two figures tell us is that there is general dissatisfaction with the way democracy is working. I hope you can see this. Figure one shows the top 12 countries that are not satisfied with democracy, with the United States and United Kingdom among them. The four most dissatisfied countries were Mexico, Greece, Brazil, and Spain. Surprisingly, Japan is on the list. Now, dissatisfaction with democracy is said to be often linked with the country's economic situation. Dissatisfaction is also linked to whether the ordinary people think the elected officials care what people think. In Greece, 84% did not think officials cared. Can I have the next slide, please? Argentina, 75%. Spain, 76%. And in the United States, 71% of those surveyed did not think elected officials care about the people. So what went wrong? First of all, 
People react to forces shaping their lives and the economy. Then there are country-specific narratives that affect people's perception of the political system. There is no doubt that from the end of the 20th century, the full force of globalization and technology left their mark on society and countries. Globalization brought the world together. Increased trade spurred growth and speeded the movement of people across borders. But globalization has a dark side. There are winners and there are losers. Globalization ushered in the supply chain revolution. <clears throat> it worked for the effective and competitive companies and the ambitious who could make connections globally, manufacturing goods, selling goods, selling services. But large numbers of workers in the older industrialized countries found their factories moving overseas and their jobs and communities disrupted. Furthermore, technology effectively created productive, increased productivity and more jobs were displaced. In fact, it has been argued that technology has displaced more jobs than globalization. To the job anxiety, there is the added aggravation from increased migration. Many Americans felt it. In Europe, the wave of refugees strained the openness towards new immigrants. Over time, the numbers looked threatening and fears of lost identity, uh, us versus them mentality, took hold of a segment of the electorate. America First and Brexit were political responses to these issues. In European democracies, right-wing anti-immigrant parties emerged and seemed to poll well. Then there is a growing inequality in many countries. According to the Federal Reserve data in 2018, the richest 10% in the United States held 70% of total household wealth. In 1989, it was 60% of the total household wealth. Now, the next 50 to 90 percentile received a share of 29% over the same period. And the bottom 50% saw essentially zero net gains over 30 years, during which their total share of wealth went down from 4% to 1%. Now, this is startling in a country known to provide opportunities and hope for its people. The wealth gap shows up in Britain as well, from April, April 2016 to March 2018. The top three wealth deciles held 76% of all wealth in Britain, while the bottom three wealth deciles held 2%. The top 10% share of total wealth was 45% largely unchanged over 10 years. To these general trends that feel dissatisfaction, we can add the politics of individual countries that has given the impression that democracy has degraded. The institutions and leaders are not performing. In the United States, Congress is gridlocked. Politics is polarized. There is, is an inability of the Democrats and the Republicans to work together and shutdowns of Congress are more often 
and for longer periods over funding bills. In the Clinton administration, Congress shut down for 21 days in 1995 to 1996 over opposition to his spending cuts. The showdown during the Obama presidency over the Patient Protection and the Affordable Care Act lasted 16 days. In the Trump administration in 2019, 18 to 2019, there was a 35-day shutdown, the longest in US history over funding for the expansion of the US-Mexico border barrier. A shutdown means some services will not be funded and temporarily stopped. Finally, the way power has been wielded by President Trump has sent American academics and commentators into overdrive to analyze him. British politicians have left the world breathless at how the country's constitutional future was decided by a simple majority vote in a referendum and how long it took the leaders and parliament to pass the legislation on Brexit, described by the British national media as bumbling and fumbling. The fact that Brexit actually happened had some cheering that democracy had won. In Spain, they had four general elections in four years, yet parties could not form a coalition in 2019. So much so that 90% of the electorate polled, expressed anger at the politicians for their inability to form a government. Little wonder then that the Edelman Trust Barometer shows that trust in elected leaders has been eroded severely. Interestingly, countries in Asia still have trust in their politicians. And in Singapore, trust level is high, 70% as the table below shows. Western democracies did not do so well. Look at that chart. We are only beginning to appreciate the value of trust in the functioning of democracy and good government. Oh, before I go on, I should point out China showed 1990, India 81, uh, Indonesia 75, Singapore 70, Thailand 60%, you know, trust. So, but the a lot of the Western countries are in red on the other side. Francis Fukuyama highlights trust as an element of social capital that helped some countries to organize and prosper. Here, I am talking of trust in the political institutions, political processes, and the political leaders which, makes, which make negotiations and working out compromises achievable. This is necessary in a democracy and good governance. In the recession of 1984 and 85 in Singapore, Singapore leaders managed to persuade workers to accept a cut in the CPF to preserve the jobs and keep investors in the country. At that time, employers contributed 25% to CPF and employees 25%. The PAB government added that if the economy improved the CPF if cuts would be restored. CPF was gradually restored, but never up to 25%. However, the other benefits and opportunities kicked in when the economy grew and people accepted it. Much has been spoken of how social media has exponentially rendered governance more difficult. George Yeo, 
our former foreign minister. In the 24th, Gordon Arthur Ransom oration eloquently described the impact of social media, which creates echo chambers fragmenting society, but also reintegrates and combines the elements into new nodes in the networks with new identities based on ethnicity and religion. It is no wonder people take to the streets to express their anger at the system. The yellow vests in Paris, protesters in Hong Kong, the young demonstrators in Iran after the Ukrainian plane was shot down. And, the and in the United States today, there are the ongoing Black Lives Matter protests that exploded into countrywide race riots in cities following the death of George Floyd. It is a cry for justice from the judicial and law and order system for African Americans. If democracies are faltering, can they be fixed? Some writers ask dramatically, if in Western democracies, the people can recognize when the system is performing at subpar, and would they know the system is dying a, slowly, a slow death? You can say the political system is not performing optimally, but you know, my sense is that American democracy can survive any individual or any collection of people's misuse. The system is strong. It needs fixing. However, it is not just about changing leaders. It is reforming the process as well, which is complicated. Now, at a Chicago Council Conference on Global Cities a couple of years ago, I made the point that the essence of democracy is government responsiveness to people. You know, my statement resonated with the audience in the room. It is not the Schumpeterian idea of alternation of power between two competing parties. Power can pass between governing party and opposition and nothing changes for the people. People must know leaders are listening and responding to their greatest interests and needs and the institutions can deliver. That ends my discussion on democracy. Let me move on to the third challenge, which is capitalism. Capitalism flounders. Now, when Thomas Piketty published Capital in the 21st century, his book became an instant hit. It became number one on the Amazon best list and was sold out in many stores. It catapulted him to rock star status. His book appeared at the right time when economists, business leaders, media commentators, politicians, and most importantly, workers were beginning to question if capitalism as a model, as a system, works for society and the economy. Why so? Piketty argues that, and I quote him, when the rate of return in capital exceeds the rate of growth in output and income as it did in the 19th century and seems likely to do so in the 21st, capitalism automatically generates arbitrary and unsustainable inequalities that radically undermine the meritocratic values on which democratic societies are based." Close quote. The problems in the functioning of capitalism were starkly revealed in the global financial meltdown 
in 2008 and 2009. We started in the United States, but spread elsewhere, leading to deep recession. Firstly, globalization, which had become hyper-globalization, saw huge flows of capital across borders, accompanied by government deregulation, advocated by a liberal Washington consensus at that time. And it produced repeated international banking crises, as Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Rogoff, two well-known economists, wrote. Secondly, economic growth did not seem to benefit everyone, and inequalities were ballooning. Occupy Wall Street took place in September 2011, a protest against the bankers, financiers, and corporates, and was joined by air pilots, postal workers, and unions. President Obama felt pressed to issue a statement in October that he was working for the 99%. And the Occupy Wall Street concept spread in the US and worldwide to Japan, Hong Kong, Seoul, and the European cities on a global day of rage. It was characterized as the 99% against the 1%. What went wrong with capitalism? Now, Branko Milanovic, who is the Centennial Professor at the London School of Economics, pointed out that capitalism has gone through three phases. Firstly, he said, it was classical capitalism of the 19th century when fortunes were made from owning, not working, owning land, you know, owning equipment. Secondly, social democratic capitalism was a second phase, which saw the growth of welfare states in Europe, starting after World War II and ending in the 1980s, softening the hard edges of capitalism. Now, there is the third uh, phase of capitalism, liberal capitalism, or liberal meritocratic capitalism, where rich individuals are capital rich and labor rich. In today's liberal meritocratic capitalism, there are many professionals, executives, who draw high salaries because of their talent and expertise, as well as income from financial assets. The elite is more diverse in gender and ethnicity, but this masks the fact of increasing inequality. Milanovic argues that the last 40 years has seen the growth of a semi-permanent upper class that is quite cut off from the rest of society. So the division in the society grows along with the resentment. Now, when Ray Dalio, the billionaire founder of hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates says, and I quote him, capitalism is basically not working for the majority of the people. That is the reality. Now, when Ray Dalio says that, you know capitalism is in trouble. He quoted a survey by the Federal Reserve, which showed 40% of American adults cannot come up with $400 in case of emergency. The inequalities are most acute in the United States. Europe has seen better income distribution with the Scandinavian countries and Netherlands doing much better. President Macron continues to be challenged on the streets by the yellow vests who began by protesting against the increase in fuel taxes and general economic conditions and demands for an increase in the minimum wage. But French writers today worry about the increasing tendency 
towards extremism across the political spectrum. We have entered an era of the spread of populism and populist politics, and political populism threatens the market system. So what is the solution? Piketty came up with radical suggestions, not all new. He advocates a social state and a progressive income tax system, a tax of 80% for those earning for half a million to a million, and a 50 to 60% on those earning 200,000. Then there's an annual wealth tax of 10% on large fortunes and a one-time 20% tax on lower levels of existing wealth. Now, some of you watching this program may in fact be wondering, wow, you know. He, what you would really like to do is to have a global tax on capital, but he admits that this is hard to implement. These ideas, I think, will not fly. President Francois Hollande tried a 75% super tax and had to roll it back to 45% as less tax revenue was collected because of less economic growth and capital flights. In the United States, there is talk of a return to socialism in some quarters. Expectedly, Democrats have a more positive view of socialism than Republicans. And younger Americans aged 18 to 29 in 2018 expressed a more positive view about socialism than capitalism, 51% to, to 45%. Still, overall, Americans from 30 and above, and that is a majority, are fully supportive of capitalism. Frankly, I think not many Americans understand what socialism really means. That may explain why Bernie Sanders, though he's 78 years old, won support from young people, than more support than Pete Buttigieg, simply because he advocates more socialist-inspired policies. Now, Glenn Hubbard, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush, makes more modest suggestions than Piketty or Sanders. In an opinion piece in The Economist titled, America needs to fix capitalism to save it. He argues firmly that one of the roles of an economic system is to improve standards and to deliver prosperity widely. Hubbard suggests introducing policies that provide greater opportunity for the people and boost social insurance. To expand capitalism's benefits, the country should invest in community colleges, fund basic science, increase earned income tax credit, and boost the demand for labor with subsidies to employers. Sounds a bit like workfare to me. He also argues for more insurance support for the unemployed for longer periods, and that there should be federal intervention for wage insurance for older workers. Hubbard advocates that if workers can be compensated for unemployment, why not compensate workers if they move to a job with lower pay? Interesting. The Trump presidency has not defined the problems this way. President Trump has relied on tax cuts, cutting better trade deals, reducing tra trade deficits to create more jobs and presumably to help redistribution. He has had some success in creating more jobs, 
but there is little evidence that the corporations have shared the savings from tax cuts to increase the wages of their employees on a large scale. The COVID-19 pandemic, however, has wiped out all that, and the claims for unemployment benefits are at a historic high. As I am speaking, many of you may think what I've said about the West finds faint echoes in Singapore. Let me say now, we are not the same. Many of our policies have anticipated some of these problems, and I intend to discuss this in my third lecture on Singapore, <clears throat> which examines how Singapore deals with the transitions and changing systems and structures. So I may not be as dystopian as my title suggests, and you can leave the hall this evening feeling less dark. Now the final challenge, world order unravels. For more than 70 years, we have lived and prospered by the American-led liberal international order and a Pax Americana in the Asia Pacific. There was a predictability and a certainty about the established order. That order is changing. The rise of China and its impact is what countries in the international community are responding to. How China behaves, how the US behaves, and the responses of the region and the rest of the world will shape the emerging new order. We are concerned with the shape of the new world order, the values and norms that will prevail, but more importantly, how we reach there. In December 1991, the United States emerged as the world's sole superpower, the hegemon leading the post-Cold War order. Many scholars in America would argue that the unipolar moment was brief. Whether the United States held to its hegemonic status globally is disputed by many who point to the fact that the United States needed the coalition of the willing to fight wars overseas and for the legitimation of its interventions. Its burgeoning debt became an issue for Congress, especially the Republicans, which placed restrictions on the administration's budget expenditure, especially in defense. In spite of two wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, the deep financial crisis and recession, there is no doubt the United States possesses the capability to project military power in every region of the globe. But its domestic base no longer supports unilateral wars, and they question America's global leadership role when there are many problems back home which need fixing. There is a sense that there has been a quick unraveling of the established liberal international order in recent years. Why is this so? Let me first take a step back to highlight an important point made by John Meshheimer from the University of Chicago. Meshheimer argues that the liberal international order existed only after the end of the Cold War, when the US emerged the hegemon. From World War II to the end of the Cold War, there were two bounded orders, one led by the US and its friends and allies, the other by the Soviet Union and their friends and allies. The values of the US bounded order included liberal values, such as 
free market, free trade and free movement of capital, free movement of peoples, democracy and freedoms, and built multilateral institutions such as the UN, GATT, WTO, World Bank and IMF. It was an order built on strong military alliances. It was also realist and included some authoritarian regimes who were anti-communist. It excluded the Soviet Union and China. The Soviet Union had its bounded order of allies and partners based on shared ideological goals and military and security objectives. Then there was an area of shared order which brought the United States and the Soviet Union together as it was in, in the interest of both superpowers to prevent proliferation of nuclear powers. It was not until the end of the Cold War and the US emergence as the world's hegemon that we saw the creation of the liberal international order. The West led by the US launched a policy of promotion of democracy and human rights globally. China and Russia were included in this order and they were allowed to participate in the institutions. China's growth and rise was greatly helped by this inclusion. Presidents Clinton and Bush both worked in their administrations to have China admitted into WTO. In fact, China has done extremely well in the liberal international order. Two developments started the unraveling of the existing order and pushed towards a rapid restructuring of the new order. The election of Donald Trump as the 45th president of the United States and the election of Xi Jinping as the president of the PRC. You know the facts. President Trump advocated an America first and make America great again approach in all his policies and came into office distinctly negative towards multilateralism and multilateral agreements. He pulled the United States out of Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, and his administration blocked the appointment of the remaining judge to the WTO appellate body, compromising its work. Trump remains ambivalent towards NATO, insisting all his allies shoulder a larger share of the defense burden, renewed his demand as recently as 2019 and 2020, that Japan and South Korea pay more for the US military presence. Japan was asked to quadruple their annual payments and South Korea to pay five times more than they do now for the US military presence. He has forced the renegotiate, renegotiation of trade agreements, NAFTA, into the US-Mexico-Canada agreement and the United States-Korea free trade agreement. He has weaponized tariffs, using them for non-trade issues on Mexico to secure their cooperation on immigration. When the largest economy in the world takes this direction, it can be destabilizing for the rest. On May 19, in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, President Trump announced the termination of his relationship uh, with, with WTO and his intention to eliminate American funding. And Fariz Zakaria, in a commentary, called this hegemonic 
abuse. So has the Financial Times and The Economist. I have said this in a previous article that those of us in the world order business have been blindsided. We thought it would be the rising power that would break the world order. We did not expect the established order to be the one tearing down its own rules. President Xi Jinping came into office as a leader of a more confident China. He came in offering ambitious visions, a China dream for the Chinese people, Belt and Road Initiative for the world, accompanied by AIIB. But it was the Made in China 2025 that was seen to be the direct threat to the US economy and security. In combination, the last three initiatives sent the message to the West that China was taking steps to reshape the existing liberal international order. The fact that it stepped up its activity in the South China Sea claims, militarizing the area steadily from 2008, caused unease in the region. Although ASEAN countries and China are working on the code of conduct, Chinese naval ships are still active, pushing ASEAN claimants in the waters. And at the start of 2020, was confronting Indonesia, a non-claimant state over the sovereignty of waters around Jakarta's Rio Islands in the South China Sea. The dynamics of the restructuring of the international order has been unleashed more speedily and intensely than anticipated. Chinese participants at international forums have said many times that China did not have a hand in shaping the rules and institutions of the current international order, which is why it did not rise to the idea that Bob Zelig put forward that China become a responsible stakeholder. It is interesting that some Chinese academics make the point that China does not want to tear down the international order, but it wants to make some changes to institutions reflecting China's economic position and that of other powers which have similarly developed. Now there's a debate going on in China on what sort of role China will play and should play in world affairs. The COVID-19 pandemic offered China a unique opportunity to step into the role of global leadership, given the absence of the United States on this issue. The US, caught unprepared, has been struggling with a chaotic response to the coronavirus. This has further fueled the rivalry. Given the direction the US-China relationship has taken, John Mersheimer predicts a return to two bounded orders as occurred after World War II. Only this time, it will be the United States and China. Mersheimer argues that in the common shared order would be the space where the economic rules would be worked out. At the time of writing in June 2020, the Trump administration looks determined to unwind the liberal international order, force a hard decoupling and return to two bounded orders. But technology and trade are not so easily separated. It was easier during the Cold War because the, the United States and the Soviet Union did not trade extensively. Now China and the United States have thick economic relations, which ideology cannot undo. Yet 
the signs are that the US is determined to force this through. Will they succeed? Will the two bounded orders re-emerge? Now that depends on whether allies will line up unambiguously. The European Union would want to preserve a role for itself as a pole. And it is well known that there are differences between the United States and Europe on major issues at this time. So there could be three poles or perhaps two and a half poles. It is not certain too that China wants to confine itself to a clearly bounded order. World order is unraveling. My own sense is that the changing world order will look a lot messier before it becomes clearer. And I will take you through this in greater detail in lectures two and three. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Chan, for an amazing tour through the global landscape, covering so many important themes. There are many questions that have come in for you. They're coming in thick and fast. We will not have time to do every single one of them, for which I apologize ahead of time. But I've worked hard to try and group them all together into themes. And an important theme that has emerged, I can see that this audience is one that's greatly concerned about democracy and our understanding of it. They see that this is something that's hugely important for the world and for themselves. So I'm going to ask you, Prof Chan, if I may, a number of questions on the theme of democracy first, and then I'll broaden that out to some of the other, other issues you've covered. Part of your point on democracy is that it is not, we should not have a haloed, rose-tinted view of it. It does not solve all our problems. And you've recited the facts about capitalism, COVID, and a range of things where it has failed. Part of a pushback, as it were, from the audience is, has it really, is the idea of democracy really at fault? Or is it just the way that it's been implemented in the world? So while you, you reflect a bit on, on answering that, let me give some examples which the audience has, has brought out. They say, you know, democracy, what's wrong with it? It's meant to be a level playing field. A democracy, one person, one vote, is the ultimate level playing field. It is something that equalizes opportunity. Everyone has a shot, especially the poorer. And you are right to point out, Prof Chan, that the larger Western democracies have been dismal in dealing with COVID-19. The US, UK, at the very top of the league tables for confirmed cases and deaths. But let's not forget, smaller democracies have actually done relatively well. Singapore is one instance of that. New Zealand is another. So it's not that you know, our COVID-19 experience is a taint on democracy. It's a taint on specific ways that it's been done, that, that it's been taken forward. So let me just mention some names. Kenneth Tam in the audience, Tan Choi Heng, and Wai Si Chua, with an emphasis on the US Electoral College. There's a pushback 
on maybe a too simplified view of democracy. So I'd like to get your response to that before I go on to some other questions. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Kenneth. And I thank the audience for their questions and for challenging me. First of all, let me say that I'm not against democracy. I am for democracy. In fact, I say that, you know, the strength of democracy is that this discourse is coming out. What I'm quoting and what I am reading is what scholars, liberal scholars in uh, Western countries, in the United States, in Europe, in Britain, are doing, examining why democracy has failed in the West. And they want to fix it. And I think it can be fixed. And I agree with those who say that, is it really, that, you know, do we, can we tweak it? I think you can tweak it. Is it people, is it individuals that make democracy, uh, that make democracy, that degrade democracy, shall we say? Part of that is technology. So it's a question of how you save the system. I think in the end, as Winston Churchill says, democracy is still the best system after all else has been tried. So when I raise this discussion, it's not that I want to down democracy. Please don't get me wrong. In fact, I come out saying that I think American democracy is strong, you know, and what we see and all the criticisms that are leveled on it, you know, I think it will survive no matter what you say, is how do you tweak it and what do you have to do? So it's a question of do people change it? If you get rid of a, good, a set of people, does it make a difference? Do you still have to do something else, you see? And it is polarization of views and it is how, I guess, party politics uses a process. So I am not against democracy. I am questioning how it has been used. And if it is the structure that allows it to be used badly, how do you fix that structure? I hope that Excellent. puts people at ease because I am not against democracy. And not I said all. that it is a good thing that uh, democracy allows this kind of discussion. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you, Prof. Chai, for that very great clarification. Fred, let me pick up on, on that thread of thinking because it chimes very well with something that you said at Chicago Council. The essence of democracy is the government's responsiveness to peace. Yes. And of course, well-functioning democracies carry their property. But Chen Liping in the audience, uh, maybe a little mischievously, points out that non-democracies also have that feature. So she says, China is not a democracy, uh, but the people report great trust in the government. And that trust comes from how they have seen the government respond to their wishes, whether it's the middle class, wanting to stamp out corruption or a range of other, uh, other similar, similar areas of, of contention. So Li Ping's statement is non-democracies also are responsive to people. How do you view those states then? Uh, you know, I guess I go for good governance, you know, in the end. Democracies in the, you know, democracy allows for good governance. But that democracy does not necessarily ensure good governance. Mm -hmm. But if you have good governance, you can bet your sweet life there is some degree of democracy and accountability there. I will put it that way. 
Now, Certainly, yes. I, I have not brought in, it is true, some non-democracies, in fact, do respond to people. But there are other issues as well, I think. Human rights, you know, uh, I'm only talking of responsiveness to people's needs. So there are, there is more than just, uh, you know, responding. I think I'm reacting to what uh, is the strong criticism of Western democracies, no matter who you vote in, there doesn't mm. seem to be any policy change, you know. Mm. So alternation of power, which is Schumpeterian, and all of us grew up studying that, you know, mm. doesn't ensure that you change anything because it could be Tweedledum and Tweedledee. And uh, both parties are a bit alike and they're just fighting, you know, you don't mm. see much change. So mm. how do you ensure that democracy must be responsive to people. I, and I said, democracy must ensure this, you see. But Excellent. there are authoritarian uh, systems that also do this, but there are other features that come with authoritarian governments. Excellent. I think human rights is one of them. Yeah. And I don't know if we'll come back to, to that conversation later on in your remaining two lectures. I hope we do. But there's another very interesting branch that comes off of this statement about responsiveness to people, okay? And this is from Christopher G of IPS, but also Xiao Kun Li, Bi Lian Ang, and, and a number of others in the audience. And they are trying to, they and I are putting together a number of things that you've said, Prof Chan. One is this Chicago Council statement, the essence of democracy, government responsiveness to people. But in your Straits Times op-ed, you also said, you don't think COVID-19 will necessarily lead to such a great transformation. Now, here's where I think some people are having some issues trying to put these two together, because for, for many observers, COVID-19 has revealed a lot of the flaws in modernity, in modern society. And for them, these people, they are impassioned about changing the system for the better. So they want to put together the Prof Chan Heng Chi, who says democracy is government responsive to people, to argue against the Chan Heng Chi, who says nah, COVID-19 might not be such a great transformation, because they say this time really is different. This time people are suffering so badly, they need the strong state. Uh, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. How do we make the best use of this crisis? to transform societies and governments for the better. I thought that would come up, you know. When I use the word great transformation, I really do mean a great transformation in historical terms over decades, mm. you know. Mm. And in fact, Gerard Diamond, the guy who wrote Guns, Germs and Steel, called mm. COVID-19 a bagatelle, you know, something not very important. You know, mm. it's not as important as nuclear war, depletion of resources, climate change, and I think inequality. He considers mm. that very important. So after a while, COVID will pass. But in my lecture on Singapore, I will return to this because I feel that COVID hits Singapore differently because of the nature of Singapore. First, you know, uh, well, I'll be talking about this. You are a country that is so dependent on trade, the reconfiguration of the uh, supply chains, but when I look globally and over historical time, I, 
I just think that, you know, there's a lot of people hyperventilating about uh, some, a lot of great changes that are mm. going to happen. But there are equally a group of urbanologists and so on to say, wait a minute, don't underestimate the difficulty of changing human behavior. So it is at one level, the level of, I guess, the great transformation over years, you know, I'm talking of that. Now, transformation in Singapore and don't waste a crisis, yes. You know, I, I know exactly where these questions are coming from. And I do agree with them that this COVID-19 has brought up, in fact, all the points about the foreign workers, you know, the situation. Mm. And I think that's being addressed and a good thing it is being addressed. But I'm putting it on a, I'm speaking on a global scale and over a longer period. So when I come mm. to Singapore, I will say that COVID-19, however, has a deeper impression and meaning for Singapore. Mm. Excellent. That, that last comment. So, so, it, it's, uh, so that's how I, I'm talking globally now. And yeah. because I've been looking some of, uh, and Yuval Harari too, he thinks, mm. he, he thinks in eons, you know, and mm. he looks at, uh, I guess, centuries and the projection of time, you know. I guess also is because when I look back at all the other crises, we really reverted a lot to norm with some changes. We internalize mm. some changes. Mm. So, you know, I think this COVID will last next year. You know, once that it won't, we won't change our behavior till there's a vaccine. Mm. You know, when there's a vaccine, we will travel, things will be opening up much more. And people are talking of one and a half years to get the vaccine. So let me just be conservative and push it to next year, end of okay. next year or middle of yeah. next year. Then after that, we will start changing. And I think the economic recovery will be the hardest one for everybody globally. Will it take 10 years like the Great Depression or will it be faster? So um, I guess I have seen how the global financial crisis bounce back much quicker than we thought. I saw the Asian financial crisis bounce back much faster than we thought. And if you look at 9-11, people got over it, you know? So I'm taking that historical recent record to guide my thinking. But yeah. uh, I would say Singapore is different because uh, we are located because of geostrategic location, because we are an island nation. And uh, really is the whole way trade is being reconfigured that mm -hmm. will impact on us, you know? So yeah. I will touch on that when I come to the third yeah. lecture. Yeah, I mean, exactly as you say, Singapore's situation in terms of travel, tourism, some very critical industries to Singapore's economy will be yes. affected and there will Absolutely. be adjustment. And, yes. uh, but I think there's also a concern among from some of these questions that you're picking up on, on larger global changes. You know, this, the, the change that we have been promised when we went after the top 1%, the change that had been promised when we did Occupy Wall Street. Why hasn't that come? And I think you've given us a, a good set of reasons, a good set of, of, uh, of touch points in history that say that, well, you know, that didn't happen. But it might be that we could still argue about that. When SARS happened, it was basically over in four months, if not less. And then we had the sharpest rise in Singapore economic activity in all recorded history. Uh, yeah. 
the global financial crisis was massive on the same kind of scales you're talking about now, massive, but, but it was not personal. It happened out there. It happened with financial collateralization, CDO squares, and large financial institutions. And in some ways, all people sort of abdicated on that. We said, you, the treasury, you, the financial regulator, fix it. And they didn't. But this time, this time, COVID-19, it is personal to a degree that none of these previous crises were. Because we see people around us affected, we see the rising numbers in our community. So maybe, anyway, this is just to say, maybe I'm a little bit more hopeful that there, there will be change, but we'll have to see. But certainly in Singapore, there will be. Now, there are lots more questions about democracy, and I want to, to press and, um, on that. Yeah. Yes, but there are also I, questions about world order. And I, I desperately want you to speak a bit about that. Well, so, but let me finish. Let, I'll let you finish, and then I'll come back to some questions on the world order. Uh, Go ahead. You please. see, something is happening too. I'm watching the Black Lives Matter. You know, the race riots. Mm. Mm. Um, and what is happening in the discussion on race in the U.S.? I really do hope it moves the needle, and that there would be changes. Yeah. Uh, we will see. All yeah, right. We will see. We will yeah. see. And, and I mean, and that also, you know, fits uneasily in the taxonomy that we're building because America has had a long time, over 150 years since the end of the Civil War. It's had the civil rights movement, it has the 1960s, and it's still the problem. I know. Black Lives Matter is still it the is problem. It's like the civil rights thing again, you see? Yeah. And, yeah. And now it's awakened, the, it's been reflected in other societies too, that there's a problem of racism. So this yeah. is an enduring issue. I think this is one of the most, um, to me, it's one of the most uh, powerful recent issues to yeah. emerge. Absolutely. Uh, you see, COVID Absolutely. touches on all of us. A lot of people are going to lose jobs. So it touches on each one of us, you know. Yeah, Some people absolutely. fell ill, not a lot of people fell ill, but they lost jobs. I think that is the main thing. And yeah. it's how we really deal with this issue. So we got used to, you know, working from home, you know, this uh, cyber physical combination, we're going into a blended city, online, offline, you know, but it is the job loss that is, we really have to tackle. And what do yeah. you do with the increased inequality that will come with it? So, yeah. no, no, I'm aware of that, but, uh, I'm taking a more historical view of the larger trends, you know, and uh, because there are different schools of thought, you know, and uh, I know most people are saying it's fantastic. This is going to cause a lot of changes and people are going to go all digital. I was speaking to a group of European urbanologists and I'm scratching my head. Really? Mm. You know, mm. uh, in our part of the world, not so easy and you've got to possess mm. The technology too so Absolutely. yeah so i i am maybe a bit more skeptical about this great transformation that's happening but yeah. uh, the singapore case is a very particular case because of what COVID has revealed, yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you know, you've covered four, four, you know, these four great challenges. We spent a lot of time talking about democracy and effective change, 
because that's what the audience is interested in. But audience is also asking questions about some of your other topics. So I feel that we should touch on, on those, have a bit of discussion on those. So if I may, can I switch the focus a little bit to, to world order? Certainly. And the, the, the image that you've described. When you, when you recount John Mearsheimer's extreme realist view of the world, the two great competing powers, and uh, we're in this Thucydides-type world where the great powers do what they will, the rest of us suffer what we must. Right. And I, I know that that's, not, that's way oversimplifying the sort of great challenges ahead for us. But one of the questions, among the questions that have come up from Devadas, from IPS and others is, in your view, how, do Sing how does Singapore, how do the, the middle states generally fit into that picture? Not least given that it's Singapore, New Zealand, Vietnam, the middle states, they have been very successful in dealing with COVID-19. Shouldn't this now be time for them to take on more of global leadership? not just leave it to the great powers. Actually, I was hoping to do that in lecture three, you know, mm. because I think these bubbles that are being developed, first small states or middle-sized states are beginning to feel they have some agency. It's a mm. question of how much pressure they can, uh, mm. you know, uh, take on. But mm. we are also seeing bubbles being attempted, but you know, because of the second wave, people are going a little back on the bubble. There's talk of the Australia, New Zealand, Tasman bubble, but it's not actually implemented yet. So people are quite cautious. But, and Australia wanted to bring in Fiji. Now, there's mm -hmm. a geostrategic dimension there, you see. So I see that if these bubbles develop, air bridges develop, it can, in fact, impact and develop into... Uh, certain, you know, a certain grouping, a certain grouping that can work for itself. Can we take uh, leadership? I think there's leadership over different things. Mm. And in a funny way, Singapore has enjoyed a sense of leadership or people turn to Singapore for leadership in ways we, that surprise us and which uh, we don't understand why but they do look to us, to how we uh, manage the economy. How do we make things so successful? And I was mm -hmm. constantly asked about this when I was in the United States. And they mm -hmm. were absolutely surprised to find we were not a middle-sized state. And mm -hmm. I will have uh, tables and figures to show, you know, there was a low E power index, which also measured that Singapore has far more influence than we think. So small states mm. can influence. You influence mm. in specific areas. You specialize in areas. So if you look at leadership in different areas, it you can say small states take leadership in innovation, whether it's in healthcare. Now you can split it in that way. But I guess the leadership that one looks at, global leadership, is the larger security issues and the uh, e economic issues, how you shape okay. the world economy and how you shape the security in the world. Okay. And the big Thank boys you. are Thank fighting you. over that. Yeah. But small, <laughs> small mean... states are trying to have a say too. And I exactly. think, um, you know, and I will be talking of the different groupings that are being attempted. Exactly. But your Singapore example is, is a wonderful one because it also points us in the direction of saying maybe 
the way we traditionally think about what great powers are in terms of their footprint, their population, their military size, their GDP, and so on. Maybe that's not the right way to think about what truly great powers are, because knowledge, expertise, uh, you know, the ability to take care of your people, those are hugely important. And in terms of the size of that metaphorical footprint, Singapore might only have five and a half million people, but that footprint is extremely large. And maybe world order should gravitate towards that kind of a, an assessment rather than the traditional one. There are more questions pressing you on this, and it might be, I, uh, Prof Chan, I'm going to just say these questions. It might be that you'll say, in the interest of time, we should move on because you'll cover this later. But as you might expect, there's huge interest in what you've already said about US, China, and this shifting world order. You know, my whole second lecture is on it. I, <laughs> yeah, it I, know. I know, people are already I pressing you. When I was, and I want to talk about the technology war and so on, but you know, I want to save that for the second lecture. If I do everything now, oh my goodness, I was told 50 minutes, 55 minutes, you know. Yeah, so, okay. I, so, I, so maybe I'll hold off, I, with I, apologies. I'm very happy to answer these questions, you know. I'm going to apologize to Tamara Krishna, Kelvin Tay, Victor Mills, and, and a number of others that I'm not going to pick up on their questions now, save them for the, for the next time, because I think those are very appropriate for US-China. I wanted to bring into the discussion some of the other things that you've raised, uh, inequality in particular. And you've described the sort of the, the angst and, and the sense of despair so many people have, and rightly so. If I were an American, and I lived in the world's richest, most powerful nation, and I'm one of the bottom 50%, and I realized that over the last half century, my economic well-being has not moved at all, I would be a little bit upset because that's not how a great democracy takes care of its people. So there are some questions on this. That point about the 50% disaffection, it's really a point about what's happening at the lower end of the income distribution, but what's happening to the poor? Because inequality in China has risen even more than inequality in the United States, but the bottom 50% in China have seen their incomes rise even faster than the incomes of the top 10% in the US. So the bottom 50% has been lifted tremendously. So is it really, about inequality or is it really about taking care of the vulnerable in society? Those need not always be the same thing. Um, you know, I think inequality is really a global issue, is a big issue. As I said, Gerard Diamond thinks this is global inequality is really one of the big issues of our times. And you can see this, everyone is saying this and I fully believe it. And, you know, inequality is a moving goalpost, I feel. You never fulfill it, you know. The gaps are always there and every society has to work towards eliminating inequality because the goalpost moves. You think you've done enough? Hey, the top uh, brackets have moved further, the top tiers. So you have to move the, you know, the bottom rungs. So you always have to address the issue and it is global. And the social mobility the, issue. Social is social mobility. It's not just inequality you help. It's the mobility. Mm. Mm. You know, do you see mobility? And I think that is the main 
um, the main point. Very many surveys show that, you know, in Asian countries, young people have hope. They think they can mm -hmm. move on. That you interview your, you know, young people, same age group in Europe, in America, they don't think they will do as well. So that really impacts on an individual's perception of society and the future. I think, uh, you know, inequality has really, in many ways, damaged this gross inequality, American democracy, mm -hmm. apart from the polarization and so on. Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. fact that Americans now realize it, I don't know how they're going to fix it, you know, they have to fix it. And now that you have, I, I was reading Jamie Dimon also came out, JP Morgan's chairman, yeah. saying yeah. that, you know, we really have to solve the inequality. There's a lot of, you know, talk about it, uh, but what do they do about it? Um, those who think hard, like Ray Dallow has put a lot of money apparently in education, community mm. education. So they're mm. targeting that. But I think mm. maybe it has to be a much broader program, a larger program, but uh, inequality is an issue that impacts on democracy really, mm. you know, mm. apart from technology and how you use a technology and so on. But mm. um, uh, so I've highlighted that, frankly, that is one of the key issues. The mm. other thing that people will say is social media is a way, you know, and the 24-7 uh, cable TV and how you polarize views and therefore it doesn't work and how ethnicities and identities are enhanced because people read the same, uh, join the same chat books, chat groups, uh, go into the same websites. Well, that's one way mm -hmm. of explaining it. But I think the inequality issue is big in the United States and jobs, is jobs and mm -hmm. inequality mm -hmm. and race now. Mm -hmm. That's been highlighted a good yeah. deal. Yeah. And there's a, there's a vicious cycle that can be set up because disaffection with the system makes people turn away from it, makes people less willing to participate in it, actually blocks off the avenues for their betterment, bettering themselves through the system. And what you've described, I think, you know, touches on so many of the important things that we need to fix in highly unequal societies. Terence Lee in the audience ask a question that I think, you know, that, that what, what you've, you've addressed, which is how do we put the populism genie back in the bottle? It's now been unleashed. It's causing all kinds of further social destruction. We need to work on the virtuous cycle. I, yes, I think you need to work on a virtuous cycle and it's got to be the economic opportunities and the way distribution takes place. But once something is unleashed, a force is unleashed, we all know we are students of social forces. They take a couple of decades before they peter out, you know, mm. but what helps mm. it? You see? Mm. So I think it will be there, but addressing exactly these issues of redistribution of jobs, you know, of looking after those who are left behind, I think that's extremely important. Excellent. I, we're running out of time, Prof Chan. And if I was I may, going can to I just... say, you know, we had our populist moment, but now <laughs> we, we, we did. <laughs> we, I would like to, to ask one more question. And this is a question that I'm going to expand from something that Tan Choi Heng posted. But I'm going to expand it to cut across all four of these challenges. 
So yes. the question has to do with, uh, with you know, views of individual society democracy. But it's really a question about Eastern versus Western worldviews. You know, as we look upon COVID-19, we look at these disruptions on trade, on democracy and so on, there appears to be emerging a kind of geographical statement, East and West. Where does the East-West worldview separation fit in your description of where the world stands now? Oh, um, you know, I, I see that there is a difference in the cultures, but I don't want to use it to the sense of saying that different worlds, you know, mm. because I do believe in uh, global communication. To say one world is a bit, you know, is almost innocent and naive, but I, I don't want to stress the differences that much because I do believe some values are shared. But um, if you're looking at COVID, where do we stand now? And, you know, the cultures, East, West. Um, you know, I was reading about, you know, people are questioning liberalism in the West. And they say liberalism emphasizes individual liberty and freedoms and doesn't emphasize so much common good. And that's why liberalism is not so effective in uh, supporting or pushing to correct inequalities and redistribution. Now, that very same emphasis on individual rights and freedoms, which is very much in the DNA of you know, uh, Western countries, many of them say, why should I wear a mask? You know, Why should I listen to my government to say that you have to stay in and you know I this is my freedom if I want to get COVID I'll get COVID you know so um, I think in Asia um, there'll be less of that you know mm -hmm. I don't think people will say this so blatantly you know and they will comply comply more I put this to a communitarian culture but uh, you are right in an earlier point you said small democracies like New Zealand works very well too. But I think they are also, because it is a smaller democracy, uh, there are features of a communitarian awareness that is not communitarian in the Asian sense. You know, it's a small mm -hmm. community, you know each other, you know, and uh, I'm sure the Maori culture too impacts on it. Thank you for that Does observation. Does that answer your question? I mean, is that what you, or were I think you asking? It's a very open-ended question, and uh, there's yeah. lots more we can dive into that. Uh, you're right on, I mean, uh, just a quick observation on New Zealand. Prime Minister Ardern, through, well, Facebook Live conversations like the one we're having now, did a lot to build that communitarian spirit in New yes. Zealand. So yes. that is a very important point that, that we will need to, to reflect on going forward. Listen, and the way she, she handled the, the yeah. you know, Shooting in the mosque when she came out of it. Absolutely. 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 Henchi, every time I speak to you, I cannot stop because I learn so much. The density no. of new learning per unit time is just unbounded as far as I'm concerned. But I'm afraid we've reached the end of our time. Um, I want to thank everyone in the audience for their attention. I want to thank everyone who's asked questions. And I know there were many more I never got to. So apologies to those whose questions I did not get to mention, but I hope you will all come back to ask 
questions again in the subsequent lectures in this series. Now, normally at this point, I would turn to the audience in the room and invite everyone to join me in thanking the speaker for the sparkling presentation and the wonderful conversation that we've got. But since this is all virtual, we don't get immediate feedback from the audience. I will just thank you, Ambassador, Professor, my good friend, Heng Chi, for just such a delightful one and a half, one and a half hours. I thank you on the behalf of everyone in the audience. Thank you very much. Let me now hand the time over to Kai Xin, who will close out the session. Thank you, Prof Kua, and thank you, Prof Chan, for the lecture. We've come to the end of the, today's lecture. We would like to hear your view on the event. Please click on the link on our Facebook comment to submit your feedback. Professor Chan's second lecture will take place on 1st July. Details will be on our website and Facebook page. We hope to see you then. Thank you all for attending this evening's lecture. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.